Welcome to A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends. Although this podcast was taken from an April 7th U.S. Cal Global Table Leader Zoom call that Doug was a guest host on, we felt it was a timely, prophetic, and thought-provoking conversation to be shared with you now. What in the world is going on, and what can we do about it? Doug, Fred, and Jim explore the underlying motivations driving the Russian invasion of Ukraine, as well as other cities around the globe. Share this message with a friend and subscribe for weekly encouragement and inspiration. After the episode, check out our show notes on your favorite streaming platform and visit awardinseasonpodcast.org. If you've gleaned anything from this podcast, consider paying it forward with a gift at somebodycares.org. Now let's join our host, Doug Stringer. Pleasure today to have Jim Garlow and Fred Markert with us, and we're going to be discussing the importance of what's happening and the results and the ramifications of the Russian war against Ukraine and the invasion and, and what is being done in the humanitarian side, because obviously, regardless of our eschatology and why it's happening, the reality is in the midst of what's going on, if it be in Ukraine, if it's the borders of Texas or wherever it may be, these are moments for the church's opportunity to let our light shine, even as we deal with the spiritual dynamics and the spiritual warfare that is going on. Give us an update of what your sense is of what is taking place. And then secondly, importance of the church's involvement in what Jesus said in Luke 21, verse 13, because Luke 21 talks about all these crises. And yet verse 13, out of his own words, he said, but it should be occasion for your testimony. Address both issues here. I'll kind of jumble those all together. Most Western leaders and church leaders don't understand the reasons Putin went into Ukraine. It isn't about Ukraine. His number one reason is he is at war with the Western world. We can call it Western Christendom. That's what historians call it, which is essentially a war against Western Christianity and its dominance in the liberal democratic world order. That's what he's, he doesn't see this as a war against Ukraine. He sees it as a war against the West. Uh, that's clear in a February 4th document that Russia and China signed in which, and they published saying, our goal is to supplant America as the unipolar power, which is supporting the Western liberal democratic global system, right, which is based on Judeo-Christianity. Their goal is to supplant uh, the West and the international world order. So Putin sees it as a war against the West, not against Ukraine. Number two, in order to be at war against the West, he needs to have secure borders. And it's a plane all the way from France on the Atlantic, all the way across the European plain and all the way to the Pacific across Russia. In that plane, Russia has been invaded 50 times through that plane. So they want to control these border states as a buffer in order to protect against Napoleon, uh, Imperial Germany, Nazi Germany, others, Sweden and others who've invaded. They're at war against the West to supplant the liberal democratic world order based on Judeo-Christianity. He needs buffer zones for his own border security. So therefore, he needs Ukraine. He needs Georgia. 
He also needs Poland and the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, as that buffer. So that's the second reason. That is to support his war against the West. The third reason he's in Ukraine is Ukraine is a developing democracy. In 2014, it went democratic. And of course, there's a lot of corruption but it is growing into a secure, a, a, a more holistic democracy. And the last thing Putin needs right on his border is a thriving democracy, which shows up the uh, poverty of his autocratic dictatorial system. So these are the three reasons he's going into Ukraine. But let me just give you an outline of, of what I see happening from the international relations perspective. Putin realized belatedly that he can't win Kiev as it is right now. So it's a strategic, well, it's a tactical retreat in order to focus on the east. He wants to take the eastern section of Ukraine, a crescent, and the whole southern section all the way to Odessa. This will absolutely neuter Ukraine because Odessa is its economic powerhouse, the port of Odessa. So he's going to focus on that next. And what the West doesn't realize is that he is at war with the West. So that's why the West's response to this has been very anemic. Lots of words, hand clapping at the UN and, and in the Congress and everything else, but very not enough in terms of actual aid to the Ukrainians to stop Putin. It is absolutely clear that the Biden administration's goal is not for Ukraine to win. The goal is for there to be a stalemate and a settled, a negotiated settlement. The reason is the administration in America and in the Western countries is fear of a nuclear reaction from Russia, as Putin has threatened. And because of that, lots of words, not enough in supplying everything that Ukraine needs to defeat the Russian advance. If Ukraine does not stop the Russian advance, if we do not help them, then this is Neville Chamberlain and Czechoslovakia all over again. Next is Poland. Next is the Baltic states after that. Okay. One of the top Biden administration, top senior level leaders last week was asked a question in an interview saying, if Russia were to use a tactical nuke in Poland, which is a NATO country, which we are bound by Article 5 of the NATO uh, Constitution to defend Poland, what would we do? He said, we would not respond in kind. We would not send troops. We would just increase sanctions. So that's how deluded the political left tends to be about human nature. They're afraid of provoking escalation and even basically just gave Putin a go-ahead to use a tactical nuke in Poland, that we would do nothing. Why is this important? Because Russia's attack of Ukraine for these three reasons, number one, to change the liberal democratic world order, a unipolar world that is supported by America, which is Judeo-Christian in the international order, change it to a dictatorial autocratic system.
And we know in history, when that shift happens in the global order, the church globally always declines, always. So the war in Ukraine is about the future of the church for the next 100 to 300 years, whether it will continue to grow or whether we will go into a global decline. That's what's at stake. The person who responded properly in church history was Reese Howells, intercessor. Reese Howells interceded and pastored the world from a multipolar system, which was World War I, World War II, many global powers fighting for control. He prayed that through, including praying through specific battles as they were happening in World War II, so that the Allies would win, so that we could move to a more Christianized world order, a bipolar world, starting in 1945. We're at the same point. We need to pastor the world as it's being threatened to being moved from the liberal, democratic, Christian-based world order to demonic, secular, humanist world order. So intercession and prayer, fasting, spiritual warfare, these things have to be number one. And Reese Howells has given us, uh, given us a pattern. I highly recommend uh, reading his book. His, his intercessory community pastored the world through this kind of transition back at the end of World War II. It's the challenge we have right now as well. We need to pray. It's the moral decay of the West that has given us a lack of confidence to stand boldly for principles that are liberal, what's called the liberal democratic world order, which is all based on five principles in the Bible. These are all biblical ideas. Even secularists write about the origin of these ideas is the Bible, is freedom of thought, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of economics, freedom of assembly. These are the five killer apps, so to speak, of Western Christendom that allowed the West to develop and export these five apps to the rest of the world, all biblically based. That's what we're fighting for here, is uh, regaining our moral certainty so that we can stand for those values. And that's what's not happening because of our moral decay. We've lost confidence in our culture that developed out of Western Christendom. And as a result, we will not defend it. And that has to be turned around. So that's what's at stake in Ukraine. Ukraine must win. So we must have a revival in America in order to rebuild the moral foundation, to rebuild the cultural certainty that would enable us to do what we need to do for Ukraine so that the global church can continue to rise. That's what's at stake. You touched on so much here. One of the things you talked about is when things move into a dictatorial order. And it seems to me the precursor to those things is that the training of the mind to accept those philosophical ideological thoughts that are contrary to biblical thought. Do you see that we have already been groomed, even here in the West, in the U.S. in particular, to receive that philosophical ideological lie that somehow government can begin to give us direction, guidance, because we're tired 
And we, I see that even our media, even though we look at Russia, we look at other places that they are in China, they have state-run media. And if you don't adhere to that state-run media, then you're taken care of and you're shut off, you're, you're cut off. Well, we see that we have already willingly become a state-run media as a whole and that we have bought into the lie. So how do we respond to that in bringing back the heart of the church to impact the soul of our nation? Doug, spot on. This is going to be a multi-generational battle. It's nothing that we can put a Band-Aid on or fix with duct tape. It is a multi-generational battle. We need to create all new institutions. The secularists have control of all the institutions of influence, government, education, academia, the media. Martin Luther learned for 20 years trying to reform an institution that he couldn't reform it. New wine must go in new wineskins. We need new wineskins. All effort to try to reform an institution is wasted effort. That's what Martin Luther discovered, because an institution has a life and power of its own. It's a principality. It cannot be transformed. Number one, we must set our sights on building all new institutions, academic, media, in every realm based on Judeo-Christian ethics, biblical uh, worldview. This does not mean we must abandon the culture war, so to speak. We must also fight that to limit the destruction it's doing while we're building the other institutions. And that's what the church is called to do, is to be the institution builders, the new institutions that would be what theologians would call embodiment, the embodiment of the kingdom into the institutions that influence all of society. So that's our long-term goal. Short-term, to put the finger in the hole in the dike, we have to intercede, fast, pray, spiritual warfare to stop the forces. So that's the long-term goal. Immediately, we need to go to spiritual warfare, fasting, praying, return to morality, revival, and then step up our humanitarian aid to Ukraine and get our governments to truly support Ukraine with the military equipment necessary to stop Russia and China in their war to unseat the uh, liberal democratic world order. So we need two things, a long-term strategy, build our own institutions. And number two, short-term spiritual warfare, prayer, fasting, uh, humanitarian aid and military support to Ukraine. Because there are so many voices and coming from various streams, I think all of us would agree that our hearts are overwhelmed with this clash of cultures that's taking place. And we've been groomed for for decades now. We've come into this evil, perfect storm, it seems, with COVID and so many other things that is really the, the tail is wagging the dog, as they would say. Even us as the church have become divided and conquered in many ways so that we are not able to be as productive in doing spiritual warfare in this clash of cultures. And you mentioned also intercession because with Reese Howells, and what a great example, intercessory prayer is much more than handing a list of requests to God. 
Because if we want earth-shattering results, it's almost like a birth pangs. It's that place of crying out before God, praying until something happens. And it's more than just our shallow platitudes or religious incantations. I found that oftentimes, historically, revival that God wants to bring by choice oftentimes comes by circumstance. It's sad that sometimes circumstance is what wakes us up for a moment, but that we continue to push the snooze button. How do we engage heaven in this clash of cultures? Leonard Ravenhill used to teach us that God doesn't answer prayer, he answers desperate prayer. How do we become desperate for the presence of God and crowd to God specifically, not in some generality, but specifically for God to intervene? And then secondly, how do we tangibly touch the hardened hearts and minds of people that may resist us, but yet the tangibility of Christ through the church oftentimes brings down those walls for them to begin to receive the message of the gospel? In order for there to be deep change, which is what we need, we need revolutionary change in the church and in our country. We must bring influence to bear on all of the seven mountains that already exist that are in power to limit them and try to stop them, as try to inject as much of the kingdom into them as possible while we're building long-term the kingdom alternative. But three things are necessary for deep change, revolutionary change. There must be a sense of urgency, a sense of uncertainty, and a sense of vulnerability. And that's a Venn diagram. When those things line up, it motivates people for deep change. So what we need to be able to do is present what I just presented here. What is at stake? What is at stake right now is the global growth of the church. If the liberal democratic world order collapses, then the global decline of the church for centuries is inevitable. That's what history shows. So in order to stop the global decline of the church, we must stop this transition to this autocratic world order instead of the liberal democratic world order. And to do that, we must have revival in America. We must, uh, with its immediate impact in intercession, prayer, fasting, rising up of the church, and the long-term goal of rebuilding institutions. And every Christian must, we have to show every Christian how they must be involved. I accidentally became a secular humanist in the 1990s. I didn't mean to, it just kind of happened. I was one of the leaders in the 82,000 movement. I was leading with Peter Wagner and I led the prayer track where we got 125 million globally interceding every day for seven years for the unreached. And my idea was, I started, is that Christians want to do the right thing. And if we just present the vision of God, people will be so motivated, they will rise up. And for years, I shared the vision, God's glory in the nations. Look what he's doing. We need you to pray. And it didn't have an impact in the church. I, as we tracked it, didn't have an impact. And I realized I had the same idea as the humanist. People are good. If we present them with the right information, they will do the right thing. That is anti-biblical. People are fallen. People are selfish. Even Christians tend to have a selfish motivation to some degree. And so I had fallen into the trap of thinking, let's just present the positive and people will rise to it. I learned that 
I had to, what Finney says in, and he taught about revival is first, we must appeal to people's selfishness to get their attention. And once we have their attention, we can switch it to godly motivation. So I started to talk about the rise of Islam and what that will mean for America. You know, look what's happening in Detroit and talk about all these negative things and how it will impact individuals' lives. People, I got their attention, then I switched. So what do we need to do to counter that, right? So we need to get good at doing that, appeal to people's self-motivation first, to get their attention, to see what's at stake, and then say, here's what you need to do in response. Fred had mentioned and quoted Charles Finney, and I remember one of the Charles Finney's quotes is, revival is no more a miracle than a crop of wheat. And so we can address that and what revival really is and is not at another point. But if you want to kind of include some of that, the importance of our intentionality and engagement. In fact, Dr. Roger Parrott, the president of Bellhaven University, he wrote a book called Opportunity Leadership, and that Oftentimes, our long-term planning negates those moments where God is trying to get us to move in the midst of an opportunity. So we're in that midst of that moment now for a time such as this. So Jim, give us your perspective of what's happening in the Ukraine, in the surrounding areas, and what the ramifications are here in the U.S. First of all, thank you, Doug, and a huge thank you to Fred. Frankly, Fred, you weren't taking up too much time. I so appreciate what you were saying. I'd be happy if you took the whole time. That was exceptional. Congresswoman Michelle Bachman works with our ministry. She's, as you may know, the dean of the Robertson Graduate School of Politics, uh, or government rather, at Regent University. She just did a major, major program with many speakers, zoomed across the world, on the rapid and sudden rise of totalitarian authoritarianism. This is why what Fred is saying is so important it, it, it was a shock to all of us, for example, that Trudeau turned Canada into Cuba in one day and literally is getting them. There's, there's five or six pastors, there's maybe seven now that have been arrested. Some are still in jail. One just got out, but it, it faces uh, 340 citations. What we're seeing in Canada, Australia and other places, the rise of totalitarianism. So that's why I so appreciate what Fred said. A little bit back up and be autobiographical on my relationship with Ukraine. In 2019, I was invited to be one of a number of speakers at the Ukrainian National Prayer Breakfast in Kiev. In going there, I quickly discovered the depth of renewal spiritually that had taken place in a nation that in many people's minds is associated only with the word corruption or with uh, Hunter Biden or, or whomever. And what I saw there was just some remarkable things that had taken place in that country. There were 1,000 people present at the Ukrainian breakfast that I spoke at. 500 of them were elected officials. Since then, I kept uh, contact quite a bit with quite a number of political leaders there. On September the 7th of last year, I was supposed to be back there and speak at a similar event, government-sponsored, the 30th anniversary of the overthrow of communism. How little did we know where we would be just a few months later with communism coming back in with such force. I did not go simply because of some COVID restrictions, not so much on Ukraine or on traveling at that time, but you, uh, potential U.S. restrictions for me getting back in the country. I now regret strongly that I did not go uh, to that event. But while in Ukraine, I fell in, deeply in love, as all of us do when we travel to a country, we fall in love with that country and those people. 
And the renewal that I, the spiritual renewal, I want to outline for a moment may not sound big to us, but for a country that was under the oppressive foot of communism for so long, and then came into freedom uh, 30 years ago, and uh, trying to work out as a baby democracy, overcome the challenges of a, of a really a, an atheistic culture being coerced on for, for quite some time. There was the renewal got expressed in the fact that they were very proactive in passing legislation to defend life in the womb, to defend the definition of marriage being one man, one woman. The people poured out into the streets in huge number, huge numbers. I'm talking hundreds of thousands in numbers of cities. These next few issues won't sound very big to us in America, but to those in Ukraine, this was huge. They established a national day of Thanksgiving, the equivalent of our Thanksgiving. Other countries don't have that, of course, as a unique feature of the U.S. That was established as a time to worship and praise God and thank him for what he had given. Again, the people poured into the streets in massive numbers in celebration of this. And this other one's going to sound a bit odd to us, but the ability to celebrate Christmas on December 25, as opposed to being coerced to celebrate it in January when many of them did not want to. Some of the evidences of renewal, I had the privilege of speaking to some of the churches and specifically an event on how to bring biblical principles of governance to government leaders and then how to run for office and that type of thing. I think by now, most of us are aware of the fact that the, the size is quite massive. It's, it's the size of Texas in landmass. It's the population of California. I live in California. We have about 42 million people in California. I used to live in Texas. I moved here from Texas. And Texas is, is quite large, still as large as Ukraine is. Russia itself is 28 times larger. Let's talk about Zelensky just a minute, because this is a fairly complex I suppose the story is well known, so I apologize for repeating it. Until the last month, the story didn't seem to be well known among most Americans. Zelensky came into power in a very odd and unusual way. He was a key comedian. Uh, I've had the privilege, our ministry, well-versed, is, is we meet with, whenever God opened the door, heads of state. Now, I haven't met with very many presidents and prime ministers, only 10 so far, because God has to open those doors. And we've met with members, uh, ambassadors at the United Nations. We have a ministry there, well-versed, is to bring biblical principles of governance. We're a small ministry. We're not large at all. We have met privately with 93 of the 193 ambassadors at the United Nations. So when we can, we try to meet with a president of a country or a prime minister. I say we, small delegation, and the one to Ukraine. I'm the one that arranged that trip. When we were there, we did not meet with Zelensky. I was scheduled to meet with him September 7th of last year, ensured that I would uh, when I was unable to make the trip. But we did meet with Ivan Banikoff. Ivan Banikoff is his boyhood friend who ran his campaign for president and is now head of the Secret Service. And I'm going to come back to that story in, in just a moment because I think it is a microcosm of a macro situation that I want us to be aware of. Zelensky was a TV entertainer, much like Jimmy Morales was in Guatemala. We had the privilege of meeting with him. Uh, much like Donald Trump, in a sense, was. He was also obviously a TV star. And he had a show called, it was a show where he was portrayed, as many of you are aware, as a history teacher, high school history teacher. In the TV show, they said, let's start a new political party. It's called Servant of the People. And the TV show, uh, that high school teacher ended up winning and become president of the nation. Well, that's exactly what played out in real life. Uh, they launched Servant of the People, and Zelensky was elected, I think, with something like 72% of the popular vote. When he was swept into power, he swept out a lot. They have a fairly large parliament. It swept out a lot of the people out of parliament and swept in a lot of 20 and 30 
your old people in, into the parliament. When he was elected, the prime minister of the country was Jewish, as was the, the, uh, I mean, the president, rather, it was Jewish. And so consequently, it, for, from May till, till August of 2019, it was the only country outside of Israel that had both a Jewish president and prime minister at the, at the same time. Uh, this is particularly uh, intriguing, considering the fact that one of Big Putin's accusations is that the country is Nazi. And of course, he does that because of the Aznov battalion. We may, may talk about that a little bit later. My point is, he got swept in in a very, very unusual way. It was a reaction to, admittedly, some of the corruption that was taking place uh, in the country. I want to go back to my meeting with Ivan Banikoff. Michelle Bachman was with us. A member of Congress was with us. My wife. Seemed like there was one other. Oh, Mark Nettle. We took Mark Nettle, the economist. I invited him to go with us. I didn't realize when he when we got there, he was the economist in the Reagan administration and then later in Bush 43, who was asked uh, by the U.S. government to go monitor the first ever election in Ukraine. He was a young man at that point. And uh, so when he got there and we got there at the major event, we ran right into the first person ever elected as president. And they, they embraced very, very warmly. Uh, Mark Nuttall had, he's from Norman, Oklahoma now, but he had very warm memories of that first, first election there. Uh, it's, it's important for us to contextually understand that in 1994, Ukraine had 1900 nuclear warheads and the United States and Britain and Russia persuaded them to yield and give up those nuclear warheads, all of them. If they would, those three nations promised they would observe their their uh, uh, territorial sovereignty, and we would protect them. That was our agreement with them. Now, I'm not going to comment on Russia's violation of that, but look at the sense in which Britain and the U.S. has not kept its word in that particular area. There are some issues that every time you try to bring up a discussion of Ukraine, it is quite amazing how um, intense the discussions can become. And the language that goes is something like this. Well, Putin has a reason to attack the West. After all, it's corrupted. And bear in mind that Zelensky is pro-homosexual marriage, etc. And Putin is actually for traditional marriage. So that language gets used. And then the, the NATO discussions in the buffer zone uh, get, gets brought up often. And the guarantees do not expand NATO. It, what, what it leads us into is quite a justification for Putin attacking Ukraine is the language that gets used, or at best, in the main discussions, both are inherently evil. Let's stay out of it. There's two bad guys uh, fighting it out. My contention is these are not moral equivalents. As bad as Ukraine has been historically in corruption, there is a powerful spiritual renewal uh, taking place there and an attempt to really establish democracy. We do not properly appreciate what a country comes out of if they've been for decades under the control of totalitarian authoritarianism, and they suddenly are released to attempt to do a democracy, how challenging that is, and how devoid they've been, and how atheistic they may have been coerced upon them, how lack of Judeo-Christian values have been present, and, and that's, those are being uh, reestablished. Uh, my contention, even if all those arguments are true, even if, and, and, and people want to make the case well, uh, Zelensky is committed to the World Economic Council. That's bad. Well, yes, it is. World Economic Forum is not a good thing. Well, Zelensky says Trudeau is his hero. Well, that may be true. The issue for me is that we are seeing people slaughtered in the streets, and we cannot and should not 
stand by. And, and regardless of all the geopolitical complexities, we have to focus on trying to save as many lives as we possibly can. Some say, as Fred alluded to, well, we dare not go in. I so agree, appreciate Fred with you using the Neville Chamberlain illustration. I think that is exactly, exactly right. And people are saying, it's, it's as if we never learned anything 80 years ago from what Neville Chamberlain did. Putin will not be happy with just Ukraine. He has said openly the worst geopolitical change in recent times was the bringing closure to the Soviet empire. His, his dream is to reestablish that. And already he will go after the Crimea and Belarus. And, and he, he will simply go after country after country. And we're right back where we were when I was a child. I'm old enough. I'm older than most people on this call. I remember the Hungarian revolt. I've been to Budapest a number of times. That's one of the most graphic examples of what happens if you do not stand with a group of people when they're trying to uh, claim for freedom. People say, well, it'll start World War III. I, I don't know how to bring this bad news, but World War III has already started. The World War III will not start with tanks, uh, tanks and guns and planes. World War III, that, that, that's 1940s. World War III will start with economic and cyber warfare. It has started. We are in it. I don't know when the date to, pin, to pinpoint the beginning of World War III. I personally think when Russia hacked the, the, the pipeline on the eastern third of the U.S. and then shut down our banks, that was an act of war. And for all practical, that's to me personally where I would date the beginning of World War III. We were to warn for a long time. Kevin Freeman would speak to people in Pentagon saying it's going to be economic and cyber. And they laughed at him 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And now what he says is exactly right. Now, let's for a second assume that I'm talking to a friend and he can't agree with anything that geopolitically that Fred has said and that I have said. Fred and I here have the same view. Let's suppose he can't agree with this. Then I appeal on this grounds. And if some of you belong to another camp, I would appeal to you on this. We have to do something to try to save the people from being slaughtered and we have to do it very quickly. What can we do? All we got to do is take a look at the town of Bucha and what the slaughter that took place in that town. And I think just like the first time I went and traveled overseas to, to parts of Germany, and, and I was told there were 27 concentration camps. That's what we thought in the 1970s when I went behind the Iron Curtain into what was then Eastern Germany. Now we know there were hundreds of concentration camps, hundreds. And, and in addition to that, there were the death camps. There's a difference between the two. And so I think that town of Bucha, which we just uncovered, I think we're going to find out so much more of the slaughter uh, that has taken place and the mutilation, the cutting off of heads and limbs. Well, some people said, well, Putin has only wanted to go in because the U.S. established the bio labs there. And, and well, if that's the case, then why did he go after and bomb maternity wards intentionally, theaters that were marked children on the top of them? Why did he go after the nuclear power plants of their electricity for the citizenry? Why did he go after and bomb Bobby Yar? What's Bobby Yar? Bobby Yar is the place. It's uh, sacred grounds on 1941, on September 29th and 30th to that day, 34,000 Jews were killed, shot, and they, they fell into trenches. Some of them weren't even dead yet, and they buried them alive and part of the attack upon the Jews. Why, do, why would he bomb that place? I've been, I've been there. Well, allegedly, he was trying to get a communications tower nearby, so it said. But with all those arguments aside, what can we do now to try to get aid right away? 
Six million people are now out of the country, and that number is growing radically every day. We all know that. 10 million people have been displaced from their homes. I'm in communication with some of those. Uh, evidence for revival and renewal in that country. Um, this may be a bit controversial, but if I've attended, as many of you have, the United States Prayer Breakfast, National Prayer Breakfast. It's founded by Dwight Eisenhower and by Senator Frank Carlson in 1954. Now, as I'm, a, I'm a Kansas farm boy originally. I live in San Diego now, but I was a Kansas farm boy originally. We were always proud of the prayer breakfast because Senator Frank Carlson was a farmer four miles from my dad's farm. And Eisenhower was, was a Kansan as well. And so we were proud of that. But over the years, that has morphed. And on the platform will be people who do not embrace biblical values at all, even put in equal standing with everybody else. So it's nothing for them to put a pro-abortion, pro-radical sodomite that's in favor of all things unbiblical on the platform and make them leaders of that. In Ukraine, in the contrast, it is distinctly biblical. It is distinctly biblical, and I pray it will never be impacted by what has happened in, in, in the U.S. They have tried, they have tried in the midst of all the challenges of that country and the corruption that I don't deny is there. There is, there is a rising army of believers uh, making an impact. So I urge uh, all of your organizations, maybe have your own avenues to put the funds there. I applaud every way you possibly can to try to help. But here's my, here's the plea of my heart that I would urge us to keep the discussions if much as we possibly can off of the issue of, well, Putin and Zelensky, they're equally evil. They're equally bad. It's the World Economic Forum against the communists. So why would we support? Uh, it's the globalist against, et cetera. I get it. It's it's not an easy situation. It's not black versus white, et cetera. But at the same time, we got to do what we could possibly do to save these lives. Because while you and I are having these academic discussions in the comfort of our air conditioned and heated homes, they're being slaughtered. They have no water. They have no food. The number of people who are going to starve alone, not even be shot or killed, is absolutely staggering in the next few days if we do not get help there. Because of my trips over there, uh, happens to be uh, just passionately close to my heart. Doug, thank you for the privilege of letting me share. And thank you, Fred, for really setting the stage. You laid the foundation for stuff I didn't need to talk about. Thank you. I'm glad you touched on this. One of those things is our mutual friend, Bob McEwen, during the Reagan administration, was a congressman, had gone into the Baltic states. And Fred had mentioned this, that if we don't see this stop in intercession, and great analogy of even Reese Howells, that the intention of Putin and Russia is to re-engage the former USSR, take over Poland, take over the Baltic states. But uh, our friend Bob McEwen, former congressman, actually went to work with the Baltic states to help them. But one of the things that we look historically, and even there, is when we as the church, I believe is the greatest asset to any community or government, we gain moral capital and relational equity through our acts of compassion and public service together. So I see this as another opportunity that in the midst of all the bantering, that we, the church, have an opportunity again to gain moral capital through relational equity and public service together. One of the things you mentioned is also the hunger there, and, the, and not just physical hunger, but I have found, and Fred and Jim, you can address this, one of the things that, that we've been getting a lot of requests for, digital biblical Bibles, because there's such a hunger right now for Ukrainian language Bibles, 
And then also those in Romania who've been doing for years in Russian and in Ukrainian, the good news television. And so there is a real attraction to get back to a place of relationship with the Lord. And this is our opportunity again to be able to sow into spiritual and practical needs in the region. I believe that will continue to give us relational equity. What are some of the other practical things that people can do to work with the various groups? And I know for myself, out of the Foursquare and in in Grace International, there's almost 100 churches combined in the Ukraine in those two denominations alone. So there's a lot of great people on ground. But when all the large agencies leave, or when the media attention shifts, the needs will still be great. How do we make sure that intentionally we stay engaged as the church to bring spiritual and practical change to the region? The main thing we need to do is to work with the boots on the ground, right? Not NGOs or ministries that are going in and out only. That's good now for the relief part of relief and development. For the long-term development, we need to work with boots on the ground. That's the reason I sent this email with a link is that all of our YWAM bases in Eastern Europe, in Western Europe, are taking in refugees, are bringing in supplies to the Ukraine, and also uh, driving shuttle vans, our YWAM vans from Kiev and other places out, uh, refugees out. And so those are long-term boots on the ground who've been there forever, are going to stay there, committed to the region, and aren't an NGO or something that's in and out. So the relief part, we need those ministries going in now that don't have boots on the ground. But for the long-term development, we need the boots on the ground people who are there day and night. Well, I know that uh, YWAM in Chernobyl and have been helping to extract, take people in, extract people who are displaced into other areas as well. So uh, we're thankful for YWAM and you're, you're not just an NGO coming in out, you are actually planted in those communities. So thank you for that. So many other agencies that we, that we are all working with. And so I think it's important for us not to lose sight of the long term and working to and through local churches and agencies and ministries that will be there far beyond the crisis itself. I want to really underscore what Fred said, work local, work local, work local, work local. Uh, you've got to work with the people who actually know. That's when I, I call some of my friends there and t- tell me precisely what is going on right now, where you are and the areas you've been able to get. So that's the first one. The second one I underscored, you underscored on a moment ago, Doug, and that is the spiritual openness in this moment. This, this could set the stage for a distinctly spiritual revival. Many who maybe have not t- taken a serious look and who, who Jesus is in their life. This is an incredible moment. The third thing I already covered, so I'll only mention it once again, is the profound urgency of this moment. <clears throat> I'll give you an example. I got a phone call Tuesday morning, very early from Ukraine. And I says, yeah, I think by Wednesday night, I can uh, respond. I got off the call and thought, what am I thinking? This is Tuesday morning early. That's Wednesday late. That's two days that are lost. I've got to take action and figure out how to solve this now. And, and so, and, and did exactly at, 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 that, at that time. So think with a high level of urgency because uh, something done today could save some life of somebody who would be killed by the close, close of this day. We're going to have to think also that hyper urgency, but also the long-term. 
I'm extremely distraught with the kind of language used by Chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff, Milley, yesterday, a man for whom I have very little respect, Joe Biden yesterday. Both of them talked about how long this war is going to be. One of them saying, not decades, but it'll be many, many years. That language underscores what Fred talked about. They want to drag this thing out. And that's exactly what Zelensky is calling them to account for. When he called the United Nations, when his call yesterday, he listened to what he said to the UN. And so we need to stand against the U.S. government to try to elongate this and be in touch with your members of Congress to use what influence they possibly possibly can to not allow the U.S. to intentionally draw this out or NATO, if NATO has those same designs. Both Biden and Milley, speaking off the same cue cards yesterday, said, oh, it's going to be a long time. Well, if it is, nobody's going to be alive left in Ukraine. And what you're going to have with that many millions of people going into Poland, Poland was able to, and other countries, were able to rise to the occasion. But what's going to happen if you've got millions of people displaced, it becomes more than one nation eventually can handle for long term. Then these people who know their own language, their own ways, they don't want to be in Poland, they want to be back in Ukraine. Then you have the racial or ethnic conflicts that can begin to occur when one people group is pushed into another people group's uh, territory. We also got to be aware if this can come to closure quickly, which we pray it can, then the massive rebuilding that has to happen with multiple nations involved. If that happens, I hope believers are front and center on the rebuilding because the potential for corruption all over again, as billions of dollars come for reconstruction, then you have the capacity for people to privately pocket that money. And all we have is a bunch of billionaire oligarchs running the country again. So Christians are going to have to be highly involved on the long term, whichever way this goes. But especially if we're in a rebuilding mode, because the nations of the earth will rightfully want, rightfully want to help Ukraine rebuild. And they'll have to to get the people back in because everything's blown up. Everything is ruined. So I, I would urge us. I'm, th- I'm, I'm thankful for the phrasing you used, Doug. It, it, once the media cycle is off of this, we'll be, it'll be very easy for us to forget. Just like nobody talks about Afghan, Afghanistan and all the people left behind there and the horrific mess we, we have made. So thank you for calling attention to the fact we have to keep our eyes on that long after the media is no longer interested in it. There's so much more we could talk about. There's so much here that I think has larger ramifications and impact than what we've addressed already. So thank you, Fred and Jim. Really, this is the battle for Christendom. It really is, to be honest. Uh, The battle against the Judeo-Christian liberal democratic world order. Putin just I'll tell you just my analysis. He is a rational man and he's not a man who has a death wish. That's why he keeps everyone 200 feet away at the other end of the table. I highly doubt that he will escalate this to a nuclear war. Highly doubt it. Uh, He doesn't exhibit a maniacal suicidal trait, just the opposite, a desire to live. What Jim said is right, that the Western world wants a stalemate where there's a negotiation with with Putin, where we give him something, eastern Ukraine, southern Ukraine, so he can back out and save face. If we do that, 
Taiwan is on the table. Poland is on the table. The Baltic states are on the table. Georgia's on the table. This is a war against Western, the Western Christian liberal democratic world order. It's not a world war against Ukraine. So that's why we must win it. And prayer to restore the moral certainty in our governmental leaders and in our culture so that we can stand up for our values. That's one of the most critical things right now. We've been under a battle for the moral soul of our own country for many years, and now we're seeing that play it out on the world scene as well. And so this really is a a battle from our knees. We need to do battle from our knee posture and then get up from our knees and be equipped by the Lord to be discerning and also to make practical, tangible changes to the culture. Thank you, Fred and Jim, for the insights and sharing more than theory. You actually sharing things that are substantive, things that have you've engaged. You've wept before the Lord on these things as well. This is our defining moment as the church. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805-422-7348. Please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.